Hello, I'm Stephanie Flanders and this is the first episode of Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you, with on-the-ground reports every week from Bloomberg's army of economic journalists and smart conversation with Bloomberg analysts and outside experts on economic issues that matter. What's the world going to be like in 10 or 15 years' time? And what kind of future is it going to offer to me and my kids? You don't have to be an economist to ask that question. You just have to be human. Before our eyes, technology is transforming the way we work, shrinking national boundaries and creating the most powerful corporate empires the world's ever seen. Now, at Bloomberg, we have over 100 economic journalists out there taking stock of this new global economy, and usually our senior trade and globalisation reporter, Sean Donnan, is one of them. But recently he decided he might learn more at home playing online video games with his son. Frankly, I was sceptical. But you know what? He was right. In a few minutes, I'm going to talk about video games, trade and the world economy with Professor Richard Baldwin, probably the world's leading economic thinker on globalisation. But first, here's Sean and his son. On July the 25th, 2018, not too long ago, Fortnite officially went global when it released in China. That means that the whole world now, at least I think... You're listening to a British YouTube star called Alistair Aiken, or Ali A, as he's known to most of the more than 15 million largely teenage followers who watch videos of him playing computer games. He's a 25-year-old with a penchant for trucker hats and T-shirts and one of the stars of a multi-million dollar cottage industry that pumps out thousands of videos each week. And it may sound crazy, he is a good place to start if you want to understand globalization and the new directions the global economy is taking today. I'm not sure how long I'm going to have access to these servers. I may get banned at any point. I have no idea. This is all a crazy experiment. A few months ago, just after a small group of Chinese players first got access to the shoot-em-up video game Fortnite, Ali A navigated around firewalls and language barriers from his home in suburban London and logged on to what looked like a desolate corner of the Fortnite universe in China. Oh, look at that! Everything's got its own Chinese equivalent name for the maps. I'm going to try out a Chinese salty, salty spring. Fortnite, if you haven't heard about it, is the biggest gaming phenomenon in the world, with more than 200 million registered players. It features a hundred heavily armed virtual players at a time doing battle on a post-apocalyptic island. What Ali A was doing was actually something that a lot of Fortnite players, including my 13-year-old son, had started doing. Logging on to overseas servers to go in search of newer players who might make easy marks. The goal was to help them build a bit of teenage street cred. Think of it as digital arbitrage. Obviously, China have had games for ages, so it's not like they're going to be utterly terrible or trash at Fortnite. But the game has been out for a while, so they don't have the great map knowledge, and maybe they're not too good at building. That's what I'm interested in finding out. Is that on? It's on. Okay. All right. So you're getting it out. You're getting it already now. I messed up the login. 
Like many fathers of a teenager, I've watched my son Aiden over the past year get embroiled in the Fortnite phenomenon. And on a recent afternoon, he tried to help me understand what it was all about. So Aiden, what is it about this game Fortnite that you like so much? It's just, it's a fun game and it's a very social game where you so have to about, interact with It's people. about hanging out with your friends. Fortnite is also much more than a computer game. The U.S. and China may be locked in a trade war, but Fortnite itself is a product of Sino-American cooperation. Epic Games, the North Carolina-based studio behind the title, is 40% owned by China's Tencent, one of the world's largest social media companies. And that's the second way in which Fortnite is emblematic of globalization today. Its success is in part about the role of Chinese capital. Fortnite is free to play and has been able to therefore build up those more than 200 million registered users worldwide because of a $330 million investment that Tencent made in 2012. You could be this. You could be the Calamity. Okay, I'll be the Calamity. That's cool. No, there, there's ton huh? more. Just like you can pick your best choice. You okay, I, I, I like this guy. I like the guy, guy with the eye patch. Let's go with the guy with the eye that patch. Guy? That guy? Oh, yeah. Wait, hang on. That's like a crazy Halloween hat. Yeah, it was a Halloween skin that I bought. Okay, so you paid money for that. I. There's a third way that Fortnite is emblematic of globalization today, and that may be the one we think least about. Anupam Chander is a law professor at Georgetown University and an expert on the world of digital trade and how governments are trying to regulate new technologies. He's the author of The Electronic Silk Road, a book about how the internet has reshaped the global economy, and he argues that if the internet has become an everyday part of our lives, then so too has, without us really thinking about it, digital globalization. So everything has become essentially uh, part of the digital economy. Our, you know, when we communicate with people, when we go out on a date, uh, or whatever it might be, when, we, uh, when you set up your uh, wedding registry, it's all done online. Um, so the digital economy is everywhere, the, and much of it is international without our even knowing it. Just think about the conversations we now have about trade wars and globalization. Often we focus on physical goods such as steel beams, cars, or soybeans. The reality is that the integration of economies these days is increasingly a digital one that happens in invisible daily bursts that Donald Trump and all of his tariffs have not even thought of touching yet. Fortnite is only sort of free. Part of the craze surrounding it has to do with its victory dances, with names like Orange Justice that have permeated into mainstream culture. In the world of Fortnite, those are called emotes, and they cost money. In some cases, they have become so valuable that they have become the targets of legal battles. So what's your favorite Fortnite dance? My favorite's actually... Um... It's a pretty old one. It's called Fresh. It's the little, like, jingle from the old TV show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, like okay. that little... Yeah. Oh, okay. It was just kind of one of those embarrassing emotes that I would just watch over and over again. And Can you do it for me? No. That dance, you may know it as the Carlton dance from the 1990s TV show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, is one of Fortnite's most popular. It's so popular that Alfonso Ribeiro, the actor who played Carlton on the show, in December sued the creators of Fortnite in another video game, 
arguing they had used his invention without his permission. That dance is also a good way of thinking about digital trade and some of its pitfalls. When a player in Asia or Germany buys something from Fortnite, they are effectively buying a digital good, something potentially made by one of the designers at Epic Games' North Carolina headquarters. There is both revenue and a good job tied to it. The thing is, that sort of digital transaction doesn't always show up in the economic data, or often ends up being lost in the mix. And given the explosive growth we've seen of digital trade, which includes everything from simple e-commerce to gaming to using software in the cloud, that actually matters. Especially in a world where we sometimes talk about globalization, at least the physical goods part of it, slowing down due to protectionism that we've seen grow in recent years. Here's Professor Chander again. So I think it's actually just growing, but it's very hard to see because it's all happening behind the scenes. Um, in these electronic wires, in these in these uh, underground cables or undersea cables, uh, and we don't even realize that we're participating in global commerce all the time. Researchers at the McKinsey Global Institute did the math a few years ago and found that data flows around the world in 2014 were worth about 2.8 trillion dollars. They also added more to growth that year than the traditional trade in goods. But data is scarce, and a lot of things go unreported in the digital economy. And it's not just games or Netflix that we're talking about. Hal Varian, the chief economist at Google, points to operating systems made in the U.S. installed on smartphones assembled in Asia. They don't show up in the trade data. And if they did, they would take roughly $120 billion off what in 2017 was the U.S.'s $500 billion trade deficit with the world. All of this means that as much as the parent in me flinches slightly every time I come home and find my son playing Fortnite, what I'm really watching is a new generation engaging in the future of globalization. It's a future that is evolving much faster than many of us, or the data, can either imagine or capture. So can you show me how to do that? It's really simple. Basically, okay. all you gotta do is go to the lobby, um, and you click into the menu. Somewhere it's in the world of Fortnite... I'm Sean Donner from Bloomberg News. If you're on PC, you just click it. And then you um, scroll over to settings, which is like the little cog. You hit on that, and then it's matchmaking region. Oh, okay. You can flick through that. So, so can we switch some things up? NA East, NA West, NA So that was uh, Sean Donham. We're going to catch up with him in a few minutes. But first, I'm really pleased to say that we have Richard Baldwin uh, to talk to us about that piece and what it means for the global economy. Richard is a professor of international economics at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. He's been researching globalisation a long time. And I think it's fair to say you, Richard, have written at least two books, and that's just in my re- recent memory, that have changed the way I think about globalisation and way, the way a lot of people think about it. The Great Convergence, which was in 2016, and now your latest book is The, the Globotics Upheaval. You know, when you listen to Sean's piece, uh, obviously uh, part of it is just a sort of interesting tale of this global phenomenon, which is Fortnite. But some of the themes there did seem to me resonated from what you've talked about globalization and the way it's changing. Where do we fit Fortnite into the sort of the history of globalization, if you like? So 
The way I like to put it is every day we read about how artificial intelligence is making robots smarter and computers smarter, but we've forgotten that the exact same technology, digital technology, is transforming globalization. Now, one of the places where it actually did this first, and a different generation from you and I know about, is online games. So online people have been living in this digitally connected global world for a long time and playing with each other, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's starting to come into the workplace. So just as people are telecommuting domestically, what's happening now is that telecommuting is happening more internationally. And that's bringing professional white-collar office workers in rich countries into direct wage competition with very talented, low-cost foreigners sitting abroad. They're, as, I, as I call it in my book, they're telemigrating. They're not migrating, but they're telemigrating. And so I guess that's, for me, that's what you, you take away is that it, this is two things, I guess, that this tells us, this sort of new kind of trade. You know, one is that, that globalization is happening. It's not in retreat. You know, when you read the headlines about the sort of, you know, Donald Trump doesn't like trade and uh, now we're in trade wars and globalization is going into reverse. I mean, this is, shows us that, no, it's continuing very rapidly, but it's in this realm that we don't necessarily capture in the statistics. The other thing, which I think in a way is more important for economists, is it's changing the what is tradable in the world economy and the, the amount of global economic activity which can be traded, which can cross borders, is you know, dramatically increasing. Does it matter if we're not capturing that in the international statistics? Well, statistics are used to guide policy and know what's going on. And um, the fact that it's not captured in the statistics, I think, is a problem. And you see systematic misdirection of attention in the rich countries. Just Donald Trump and Brexit, for example, uh, misunderstanding how important export of services are to modern economies and how many jobs depend upon them. So I think that is an, is an issue. But, you know, deep down, you can find out about these things. And if you're in the business world, you know, things like uh, Upwork and uh, white-collar robots like Blue Prism and things like that, those are really growing very, very fast. So you can kind of tell that it's happening, even though there's not good statistics on what's happening. But do you think, uh, you know, we always used to say, when I was learning economics, they'd say the definition of a, of a good is something, you know, when you're contrasting goods and services, it's something you can drop on your foot. You know, and most of the things that you couldn't drop on your foot, services, you couldn't trade, that were not, and we tended to think were protected. How quickly is that changing? I mean, in 10 years' time, in 15 years' time, what proportion of services will be tradable, do you think? Right. So uh, at an explosive pace, that, that's the answer. So we're doubling our ability to process information, gather information, store information, transmit information. And that's essentially what services are, people exchanging and manipulating information. And before, as you said, you know, services typically involved people being in the same place at the same time. So they were considered non-tradable. But it was like as if there was, say, a thousand percent tariff on doing bookkeeping while you're sitting in Kenya for a company that's in London. But this digital technology is, is having that tariff every two years, or if not faster. So it's coming at an incredibly fast pace. And these online services, you, you can the sort of amount of freelancing revenue that's going is increasing or 20, 30% per year, which means that it doubles every year. So right now it's starting from a reasonably small base, but if you double every few years, within five years or 10 years, I think it will be a very important element. And I should say that the reason I'm so confident about that is because it already is in certain types of services. So in web development, for example, 
they frequently get a friend of mine works in Lausanne and he organizes say a programmer in Pakistan a user experience expert in Canada and a web designer a graphic designer in Uruguay and they get on the screens his screens in Switzerland they work together very intensively over two days to do a great website and that's absolutely normal in that world it's just that stuff's going to go mainstream or another way to think about it is think of all the people in your office who are telecommuting from home a day a week or half day a week that is opening the door to international telecommuting because what we're doing is we're changing the way we work to make it easier to slot in workers remotely and once we do that our companies will figure out that they're going to be able to get at least some of those tasks done for one-tenth of the price. So I think that will be uh, you know, an absolutely huge change. I, I call it the talent tsunami. So in one way, if you think about the 1990s, was hundreds of millions of people joined the factory workforce globally, and that changed the way factory work was in our countries. The 2020 is hundreds of millions of people joining the service workforce and they're not all going to find jobs right away, but just as the wave of supply of low-cost talent affected the way manufacturing was done and where it was done, I think the same thing will happen in, in the service sector. And, and what does that mean for uh, people like Sean's son? You know, we obviously had there's a sort of positive story from, from his piece that actually it's kind of unfair competition the other way when it comes to Fortnite because you've got these American teenagers who are competing with maybe less skilled uh, and le certainly less practiced Fortnite players in Brazil and elsewhere. But you know, what is going to affect uh, Sean Sun's future? Sure, sure. Well, so I'm glad you pointed that out because globalization always means more opportunities for a country's most competitive workers and firms because it opens up more customers, more markets for them. And they are competitive. And there are people like potentially Sean's son in Fortnite who is globally competitive. And this gives him more opportunities. But globalization is always more competition for your least competitive citizens and companies. And that's the way it always has been. It's just going to come to the service sector. I think the big difference is that people in the service sector, as you mentioned earlier, viewed their jobs as protected from direct foreign wage competition. But ultimately, digital technology is making remote people less remote in many ways and therefore igniting this competition. If I could just put it in one context, I think of globalization as arbitrage. So you have different prices at different places. People buy low, they sell high. What it's driven by is price differences. You've taken us to the crux of it, which is how should governments be responding? How should people be responding? I mean, you started by saying, you know, we've been just distracted by this talk of, of trade wars and a lot of this sort of old fashioned talk around globalization, which is to do with goods, when actually sort of beneath the surface, there's this structural change that we're just not getting. You know, if a government woke up tomorrow, read all your books um, and then asked you, you know, how should I be doing things differently? What do you say? Well, so I, first of all, I don't think it's fundamentally that different. I mean, people will have to change jobs because of global competition and automation in the service sector, just as they've had to do for the last three centuries. So the first thing is government should help people adjust. As I like to say, they should protect workers, not jobs. The key is the world's changing. The government should help people retrain, move, income support if they need it, whatever. And then if it all goes too fast and it becomes socially disruptive, I think the governments have to stand ready to slow it down. And that, that is where we may come from, especially in countries like the U.S., where there is no real 
active labor market management. There's, there's very little support for workers. They may, may end up having to slow it down with regulations and taxations and things like that. Well, and then we'll probably, that's going to be the subject of many more podcasts, I'm sure, is how you actually can uh, navigate these differences. And maybe, you know, some where some governments are going to do better than others in helping people uh, get through uh, the transition. But for the meantime, Professor Richard Baldwin, thank you very much. Thank you. So, Sean, you know, we managed to get a lot out of your piece, as you could hear, uh, talking to Richard Bolden. Was there anything that surprised you or that has made you doing this piece has made you want to go and, and do more? Yeah, I think one of the big things that uh, we didn't get Richard talking about there and one of the things I'm thinking more and more about is the distinction we make between goods and services. I'm not sure that distinction is as valid as it once was. I think my son, certainly, when he buys something on Fortnite, that sort of we think about that as a service, but he certainly thinks about that as a tangible good. He certainly argues when he's spending money on Fortnite that it's a tangible good and that it'll give him a tangible benefit. Um there's that, but then there's some very real changes in manufacturing patterns that we need to be thinking about. 3D printing means that oftentimes uh, a company, or increasingly, a company is going to be emailing a kind of production file to a bank of 3D printers in a far-off land rather than shipping uh, a widget uh, via container. So how do we how do we account for that in the trade data? And then there's all the soft stuff that sort of sits on our iPhone, the operating systems, the app and so on. We think of those as services, but, you know, in many ways, they're goods. And do you find, when you, I mean, of course, you're also having to report the sort of uh, plain old vanilla trade statistics. Often the US data gets a lot of attention. You know, do you feel uh, when you're writing these stories, is it you have to sort of stop yourself from saying, but these aren't really the biggest numbers. You pay attention to these other numbers. Absolutely. So there's a, you know, there's, there's, it feels sometimes like there's a big lie in the data. Uh, and it's not just about capturing. Now you're sounding like Donald Trump. I know, I know, I know. But you got to be careful here. <laughs> you're telling me the trade data is fake news? Well, it, you know, there's an element of truth to to, to, to to that line. And that is, it's certainly misleading. And it's not just about capturing or not capturing uh, services trade around the world. It's also, you know, where we measure uh, the value that's added in supply chains. You know, the the iPhone is is the great example of that. We uh, the wholesale cost iPhone leaves China, and that's what shows up as an export uh, to the United States. When we all know that most of the value goes to Apple, which is a U.S. based company. Mm. Do you think there's any prospect of the sort of public debate actually getting into some of these areas? Because you know, apart from anything else, the data is very bad. Um, it also makes for very complicated policy making. I mean, I get, there's there's a good reason why we're not getting clear pronouncements on this because it is it would say because we don't have the data and because we're not really sure we have the answers. Well, this has always been the problem with uh, uh, with debates about trade or political debates about trade is that the, the kind of the negatives are easy to identify. Uh, they're very tangible and that comes in a, in a closed factory and the benefits are, are, are more diffuse. And that gets into, you know, the, the realities now are, are, are more diffuse. And as we say in the piece, they're they're hidden oftentimes. They're in these kind of pipes underground and they're hidden away in the data. And that means we're just not having the debate we should be. Uh, and it's a pretty wonkish debate. It's it's not one that makes for good TV. Oh, but for a very good podcast, it turns out. Um, so 
finally, I mean, I'm just I'm struck. I mean, you spend your time, you're talking to these talking to businesses. In that piece, you were talking to people who are very familiar with all of the, the nuance and the subtleties of global trade. And yet we still have a very fierce debate in the newspapers and on TV and on Twitter um, about Donald Trump's trade policy, about tariffs on this and that. I mean, is it just sort of two sides of their brain that these businesses, business leaders are using? You know, on the one hand, they kind of come out, have these views and think, act like the tariffs are the most important thing. And then the other half of their brain, they kind of know that this is not really where the action is. Yeah, well, look, I mean, there's no doubt that there's a very real impact that we've seen from the tariffs on, on the economy and on businesses. We've seen higher prices for steel uh, here in the United States. We've seen farmers famously get hit very hard uh, as part of the retaliatory measures that China and Mexico and others have taken against U.S. tariffs. So, you know, there's there's something very real and very tangible there. But as I said beforehand, that kind of more diffuse debate is about uh, the realities or the digital realities of globalization is harder to have. That doesn't mean that businesses don't know that this is going on. In some ways, they're kind of happy to fly under the radar a little bit because their concern is that once a government gets a hold of some of these things, that they may in fact start to regulate and no business likes regulation. Right. Well, Sean Dolan, our senior trade reporter, I look forward to hearing about other members of your family in uh, future reports. But in the meantime, you've got plenty, uh, plenty on your hands uh, thinking and writing about trade. I know one of, our, one of our much younger colleagues said to me the other day that there was never a dull moment in global trade. And I had to assure her that there had been plenty of dull moments, but they're definitely not happening now. Thanks to you, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics with me, Stephanie Flanders. Please join us next week for another episode about the forces shaping the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com or our Bloomberg app, as well as anywhere else where you get your podcasts. Please take the time to rate and review the show so it can reach more listeners. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at MyStephanomics. The story in this episode was reported and written by Sean Donnan. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Sean's original article on the topic appeared on Bloomberg Businessweek and was edited by Christina Lindblad. Special thanks to Richard Baldwin and Aidan Donnan. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. 